Magical customer experiences don't happen by accident. They happen through careful planning and meticulous design. Kevin and Debbie have been engineering extraordinary customer experiences for over 30 years. Join us as we explore corporate culture, branding, service excellence, and much more through storytelling, technical curiosity, and friendly conversation. The Disney way for the digital age will be revealed. Welcome. Welcome to... Kevin. Welcome. To, yeah. Good morning, Kevin. Hello. What? Deb, Deb, you there? <laughs> yes. What have you got on your head? Oh, uh, yeah. So I finally jumped in and and, and wanted to explore. Uh, um, I got myself a pair of VR glasses. <laughs> oh, there you are. <laughs> yeah. 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 And <laughs> I, uh, I'm diving into this metaverse thing. So yeah, yeah. I, 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 I actually that. did buy a piece of real uh, digital real estate. I got myself a piece of uh, New York City. Um, I think I bought park in Tudor City that uh, my wife had played a concert in. I thought that was kind of cool. But I said it was time to jump into this full VR thing and get the headset on. And yes. I, 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 yeah. I was walking around uh, Meta's Horizon Worlds. Um, it was pretty cool. Um mm. So why am I doing it on the podcast, you may well, ask? Well, so, uh, it, it looks a little bit like you've become obsessed, if you ask me. A little but bit. Uh, look, so I'm exploring and feeding my head with things that inspire me to to innovate. Good. And honestly, um, you know, also it's about trying to keep up with trends that are affecting my business and are indicators of where my business is going. If you haven't heard the word metaverse, you're sleeping under a rock. And, you know, <laughs> my business is about technology, leading trends, cutting edge as trends. So I just, you know, uh, I was also somewhat self-indulgent. I wanted to try it out. <laughs> well, you know, that, <laughs> uh, really that is, little is grand about. entrance of yours actually uh, is, is a nice segue into what we're going to talk about today. So well done. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, if you remember our first episode, mm -hmm. we taught, we jumped right into the Disney dark years. And yes. even Disney can get complacent and not only lose customers, but damage their culture. So we're here to talk plainly about the fact that you need to innovate, adapt, or die. Ouch. <laughs> Ouch, that's, harsh. that's right. <laughs> harsh, but it's sorely needed wake-up call for everyone. So, um, you know, we're, we're also going to talk about risk tolerance and failure. You need to know a little about your appetite for both. So, welcome to episode seven of the Disney Way for the Digital Age podcast, Innovate, Adapt, or Die. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, how you doing, Deb? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, so we wanted to be just real about this concept of why do you need to adapt, innovate? Uh, can you really die as a business? Yeah. And I, I don't think anyone disputes the fact that we have seen many businesses die over the years because they did yeah. not adapt, couldn't adapt, or wouldn't, whatever, whatever the case yeah. may be, and. Uh, Hard to believe that uh, Disney almost came to that. Thing. Well, very close, believe it or not. It was it was a scary time. And it is hard to believe because, and I think this is even more of a dangerous situation for very successful companies because they tend to be complacent sometimes where they say, yeah. look, nobody can touch us, right? Yeah. And yeah. so we're just going to kick off with an example before we get in to yeah. the process of 
what you need to do to be able to adapt or innovate and to do it in a smart way. And that example is, and it's an older example, but it's just so very relevant. And that is the difference between, say, Barnes & Noble bookstores and Borders, which is no longer in business. They they die. Right. Um, yeah. They, this all happened while Amazon was becoming who they are. That's right. And, and the interesting thing is, is that Borders pioneered the mega bookstore phase. I mean, they they were the first and they pioneered it. No one uh, did anything like Borders was doing. And then they just kept doing what they were doing and not really paying attention to what was going on in, in the marketplace, right? Barnes & Noble, on the other hand, had some really great excess. So I, this is the example that, that I'm going to give. When Borders announced that they were going to go to close all their stores, shutter all of their stores, they did not say we're going to keep an online presence because it apparently did not occur to the CEO. And one of the statements that he made was, we've tried everything. We've thrown a lot of money at this. We've done everything to stay in business, but we just can't compete with these electronic books, these e-raters. Right, and the right. fact is, this had been happening for a very long time. And Yeah, we saw this coming. And, you know, I mean, Amazon... Amazon came out of the gate as an electronic book yeah. company, right? They didn't. They were not going to sell widgets. They were selling books. Right. Kindle Fire, right off the bat. It was an e-reader in the beginning, right? And he just didn't see it coming. So unfortunately, Borders went out of business. Now, Barnes & Noble took a very different position. They saw what was happening and they said, well, we are a bookstore and we could certainly compete in the e-reader marketplace. And they created Nook. My first e-reader was a Nook, not because I had anything against Amazon in particular, but then the Amazon Fire, you could download and purchase ebooks, but only those available through Amazon. Oh, right. So they really yeah. cornered the market on that. I, I don't blame them. That's smart business. Barnes right. & Noble said, and this was the selling point for me, you can download books from anywhere. Right. So I thought, oh, Okay, now I have more access to more books. Amazon saw that and said, all right, we need to change our policy. And in the meantime, they innovated so that their Kindle fires, as we all remember, pretty soon you had access to games, you had access to the internet, you had access right. to various apps, and it became like a little mini thin computer that you could carry around with you. And brilliantly, I thought, Barnes & Noble took a step back and said, we are a bookstore. Electronic books is a great adaptation for us, but we are not anything other than that. And that's our core business and that's our culture. And they pulled out of the e-market because yeah. they couldn't compete with becoming a little mini. They didn't want to. They, they said, this is not us. So yeah. this concept of innovator adapt to die means it's not just a matter of looking which competition is doing. It's a matter of asking yourself, what's right for me? If I'm going to change something in my business, what is the right thing to change? Absolutely. Because there's risk involved, right? Yeah, there's there's definitely risk and we'll def we'll cover that and you know what your risk tolerance is, but what I like about this example so much is that it has several examples of innovation, adapting and choosing, you know, I, I think it was uh, courageous for Barnes and Noble to say and smart to say I know who I am, what I am. 
I'm going to be smaller. You know, everybody talks about growth. Growth, growth, growth is the right thing for me. Sometimes the right choice is shrinking, is smaller. Yes. You know, it's funny, a friend of mine, yeah. uh, Alex Wigowski told me this years ago in an interview, you know, we're talking about, uh, I was actually the next uh, guest was the, a chief growth officer. And, and he said, well, what if, what if growth isn't even the right idea? What if shrinking is the right idea? And Barnes and Noble, was smart enough to see that we'll shrink to a size that we can sustain as a retail bookstore. And that's mm -hmm. what they've done. And, you know, they're still there. They're still around. What else I like is that Amazon recognized something that Barnes & Noble and the Nook was doing better, and they adapted. Yes. Look, I mean, there's no excuse for not researching all of your competition, buying mm. their products, calling their services, secret shopping. You know, there, there's so much data out there that you can just get by simply going and getting it, you know, taking a test run. So um, I thought that was a great example. Mm. And the fact that you said your dad, you know, your dad uh, loved the fact that he could get his books for free was one of the reasons uh, you and he both chose the Nook. So, yeah. And now he, of course, has a, a nice big Amazon Kindle fire that he he loves. And yeah. uh, if for some reason it's not working, you should see the panic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know you get that. Call. Said, Dad, don't don't go into the system. Just leave it alone. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And your example of borders who just, you know, didn't see it coming. Mm -hmm. Uh, Amazon started in 1994. Borders closed their books in 2011. That was plenty of time to figure oh, this heaven. out, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. see what's coming. What? Where's my place? Uh -huh. uh, yeah. Or, you know, maybe I'm just going to roll over and die. <laughs> that's <laughs> that, that's kind of what they did. There's really no no good excuse for that. No, there, so. there truly isn't. I mean, if you do the due diligence and you try to adapt or innovate and it doesn't work, um, that's an example of doing the right thing and it just didn't work out. And then you have to ask yourself, what's next? Do I step back? What do I do? And you mentioned it this morning. CNN Plus is a, a great example of that. They launched yeah. their streaming service, realized very quickly nobody was using it and said, yep, we're out of here. <laughs> so, yeah, pay attention to the data. Yeah, that no shame. That's smart business. Right. That's all there is, you know. So, so let's talk a little bit yeah. about that. They took a risk, right? right? Didn't work out. They pulled the plug. So, you know, this idea of uh, innovation, adapting or dying, kind of we've tied to this idea of no risk, moderate risk and high risk, mm -hmm. right? No, there's no risk with no change. And yes, you'll die. Yes. So let's just be clear. That's why we're being so abrupt and using the term die. I've got a couple of people <laughs> say, boy, that's harsh. I'm like, well, it's harsh. I mean, look, owning a business and, you know, I know there's a lot of small business owners, that, including myself, you know, a lot of small business listeners out there and they, it is hard every day. Yeah. So, you know, um, this, this idea that your business could die any given month is, is a real feeling for a lot of folks. So mm -hmm. it's not a joke. And that's why we've made it as serious as it is. Your business will die if you don't at least adapt, keep up with trends. Right. So it's, we kind of tie it to your risk tolerance. And I think Deb's going to go into a little bit more, but, but this simply put, you know, no risk. Yeah, you'll die. Low risk. Well, let's, let's talk about ad adopting, uh, watching trends. And let's, if you have a bit of a, um, higher uh, tolerance for risk and the means. We'll talk about that too. You can't just say, I have high risk tolerance and I'm going in. Well, do you have, do you have the ability to fail two or three times and take the, the, the financial um, hit on the head that comes with it. Mm -hmm. Exactly.
You know, and that kind of really brings us to, to the meat of that topic of risk is your ability to innovate in a high risk situation directly correlates to your ability to suffer failure. So right. it's exciting maybe to take a big risk and do something really exciting. But you have to ask yourself, if this risk results in a $3 million loss, for example, can my company sustain a $3 million loss and keep going? So the plan has to include maybe you adapt in smaller segments and keep the risk low uh, because that correlation between risk and your ability to stay in business is absolutely huge. Now, it's true that the higher the risk, usually the greater the reward. We've heard that, right? Right. Um, and we've also heard the saying that if you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always gotten. True? Right? <laughs> well, yeah, with one exception, I would add that there will be a diminishing return yes. on what you got. Right. That, that mm -hmm. won't stay forever. Well, and, and that's the way I look at that saying. I don't think that's an accurate saying either. I think if you yeah. always do what you've always done, you may die. <laughs> right. you know, let's you won't always let's just get. throw that awful word out there. Um, but if you always do what you've always done, you probably won't stay in business. So there, all businesses have to consider some level of risk. And is yeah. it a, a low risk? I just need to adapt what I'm doing, like Amazon Kindle Fire did. They said, okay, they've got their e-reader and they're letting people order books from everywhere. So we will adapt ours and let people order from everywhere, right? right? So yeah. is it a small adaptation or is it a huge innovation? And those are those are things that you have to consider. You have to measure the data in order to figure out what is the best plan to move forward that's going to get a success and and maybe as little damage as possible if it doesn't if it doesn't work out. Yeah. There's no shame in taking the adapt approach, right? You don't have to be an innovator to be successful. Right. I'll remind people that Apple was number two in a lot of things. Apple got the mouse from Xerox. Apple got their windows from, and their operating system from Bill Gates and DOS. And, you know, so yeah. they didn't innovate those things. They did take them and improve them. And that's, that's an approach that has brought tremendous success to so many. So there's no shame in being that middle ground. You don't say, oh, I'm, I'm low risk. You know, I'm not going to get the big reward. There is, that is a fantastic approach. You know, innovation has also, you know, let's go back to that CNN plus, you know, Ah, it's a great idea, you know. No, it, well, no, it wasn't. So, you know, innovation <laughs> like that in established companies has taken them down. So, let's say they, you know, they stuck with that and said CNN Plus is going to, it's going to succeed no matter what. And they kept dumping money in, and it took down the whole Warner brand. Um, that would not be a wonderful outcome. So, yeah, right. adapt is a fine approach. Uh, it's, and it works. it's a great approach. Yes. How do you know which one is right for you, Deb? What do you yeah. think? So there is. A certain amount of due diligence that has to be done. This idea of just saying, oh, look what everybody else is doing is not a good business plan. I think I expressed it earlier as keeping up with the Joneses is usually not a good business philosophy. Because first of all, what the Joneses are doing may not be right for you because you take it back to what we've talked about in earlier episodes. What is your brand? What is your brand image? What is your culture? 
So anything yeah. that you do, you have to make sure that you are still delivering on your brand, delivering on what you promise to your customers and maintaining your culture throughout. Absolutely. And the way to think about that is that anytime you are thinking about adapting or innovating, you have to remember that what you're really doing is making change. Right. And change is that word that people <laughs> hate and many people fear, you know, right. change is right. scary. Employees don't adjust well to change. So you've got to have the right action plan in place. Now, to develop your action plan, you want to have a very specific process that will, number one, get you to a plan that will make you as successful as you can be at your adaptation or your innovation and also help you to avoid analysis paralysis. Yeah. Right. I, I have an engineer husband. I am very familiar with analysis paralysis. <laughs> this is the man that it takes him two years to buy a car, you know, because he's got to analyze every model out there and all the stats. And then by the time he gets done with the first round, everything's changed. He has to go back and he has to do it all again. I, I'm serious. And he buys a car based on how many cup holders it has at the end of the day. <laughs> That's right. I drive him nuts. I go to I go to my favorite car place and I say, I saw that online. Let me see it. Yeah, that's great. I'll take it. I wait two hours. They clean it and I bring it home. He says, you cannot buy a car in one day. I said, yeah, I just did. It's out in the driveway. Um <laughs> <laughs> so, See? so maybe that is not the best way to make business decisions, but <laughs> somewhere in the middle, okay, somewhere in the middle. And so I'd like to just tell you that there are three questions that I think will help businesses. Because adapting and innovation is about making change, there are three really key questions that you have to ask. Once you've got the plan you think pretty much formed, even a draft of the plan and a process for launch, ask yourself before you launch these three questions. How does this change affect my employees? How does this change affect our customers? And how will this change affect the bottom line? Right. Because obviously you're looking at, you're going to be putting some money out to make this change. Will there be a significant enough return on investment to continue to move us forward and hopefully not damage the company, right? Absolutely. So that concept of critical decision-making means to figure out those three things. If you take the time to do that, you will come up with ideas that pop up that you say, well, wow, I'm not sure that we have employees capable of using this new technology for example. Right. Which means we're going to have we are going to have to do some training to make sure that they can be successful. And these may not have been things that you originally thought about when you were planning your adaptation or innovation. So these three questions help you to really think about will my employees be able to deliver successfully on the new process? Will this impact the customer and can we minimize negative impacts to the customer? Because you know, when things change, sometimes the customer suffers. Right. And how is this going to impact the bottom line? And can we sustain a loss if it doesn't take off right away or it doesn't take off at all? Right. Absolutely. You have to yeah. figure out, you know, how will this affect your bottom line? Right. Let's talk a little bit about uh, decision making and this idea of going with your gut. And actually, I have a couple concepts that I want to introduce around that and around what you just said. So, you know, 
again, let's get back to, we've got a lot of founders and CEOs that are listening like myself, we've got a business and you have this great idea. You have to ask yourself a few things, you know, and, and I did this too infrequently. I had a uh, interactive agency. We built apps and websites. We grew and we became this. And if suddenly we were a full service agency and I, I, you have to go back every once in a while and say, does this idea, this innovation or this direction I'm going align with why I started this company? And, and does it align with my passions? You know, is this so you're never going to be a great leader for your company unless it does also align with your passions. Don't go chase the dollar. Mm -hmm. um, it really typically won't work out. So, you know, this, this process of innovation and adapting is kind of a microcosm of the business genesis. Um, why'd you start the business? So stop, ask yourself that, say, does that align? I love your, your, your reference to analysis paralysis. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what I think if you talk to entrepreneurs and business, business owners about their number one biggest challenge, they will typically say time. You started out, you said. Yeah. Uh, we were talking before we started. Uh, yesterday, you were saying, I'm running on that hamster wheel. Yeah. <laughs> and the hamster wheel got the better of me, and I'm just spinning around. I'm the hamster that's just spinning around. <laughs> Hold on for dear life. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, time, we don't have more time. So, this idea of spending too much time on analysis, look, I, I totally agree. You've got to do your research, you've got to check things out. Um, but you're doing that. My, I would contend that it is your business to keep up on trends every day, right? Yes. There's so much data available. So it, that's something you should be doing, not as a function of, I'm going to just try this idea. I am very well aware of the status of my marketplace. What's my competition doing? Not because I decided to look into it today. It's because what I'm doing every day, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, and then there's this idea of going with your gut. And if you know me, I am a little impulsive. I always say if there's two hills, you know, to run up, I don't take too much time looking at the hills. I pick one and I run up. And if it's not the, the right hill, I go back down and I run up the other one. Um, it always reminds me of that funny movie reference. You ever watch Monty Python, The Life of Brian? Oh, my gosh. And they're talking about a plan. Yeah. They're going to him up. They're going to crucify him. Right. This calls for immediate discussion. What? <laughs> I think it's phenomenal. So going with your gut doesn't mean flying by the seat of your pants. I think a lot of right. people think that. Right. It is scientific. There is some science around mm -hmm. what you're feeling in your gut um, and, and how that can um, inform decisions. But again, there's better batters than others, right? Some batters bat 150, some batters bat, you know, three, 300 and more. Mm -hmm. um, I, I would also contend that the idea of, of um, staying up to date on everything in your business on a daily basis makes those gut decisions more effective. Mm -hmm. So that's my thought about, you know, impulsive decisions. Now, Deb, I think <laughs> you had pointed out when we were ch chatting about this later. Yes, the reptilian part of the brain uh, can be dangerous, right? Not to say, uh, you know, it is very impulsive. It's not always based on... <laughs> fact it's based on want and emotion so yeah. yeah don't make all those you know shiny new car decisions based only on that it's absolutely right you know one thing i used to tell my daughters all the time as they were growing up and getting out on their own was i would say never make a business decision based on emotion right and sometimes that impulsiveness is based on emotion so that is not what we mean when we when we say go with your gut 
what we're saying is avoid analysis paralysis by doing the due diligence first. And then once you've got the information together and it feels right, one, two, three, go. You have to go, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I want to just talk about the three things that will help you with the one, two, three, go. And um, we've talked about just a little bit already. And one is study the data. You have to figure out where you and your business stand in the marketplace. Um, again, something that Borders did, did not do at the time. You have to look at the internal environment and the external environment. And the internal environment is very specific to your company and your culture. Who are we today? How do we maintain our culture? How do we get things done today? So you really have to look at that internal environment and you have to look at the external environment. Well, what is the economy like? What's trending? What is the competition doing? And understand that what's trending and and the things that the competitors, your competitors are doing are not necessarily right fit for you. So you, you have to sort through this concept of what's going on in the marketplace. Who are you? Who are they? And what's the best thing for you to do in order to adapt, innovate, be successful? Um, you know, we we talked a little bit about Barnes and Noble versus versus Amazon. Um, good decisions on on both their parts based on who they were at the time, right? right. Uh, so, the second point is to create a comprehensive action plan. So this this is not going by your gut by being spontaneous and winging it. This is saying after we've analyzed the data and after we've looked at our internal environment, the external environment, we have to create some kind of an action plan. You have to do that due diligence. And that action plan will enable you to adapt or innovate uh, whichever one is most relevant for you. When you are creating this action plan, It has been my philosophy most of my business life, and I can't say enough about it. You should be involving as many people as you can at all levels of the organization, just as many as you can get involved. Yes, it takes time, but no one knows what's going on in the front lines better than your employees. No one knows what it looks like to support that front line and faces the issues day to day, whether they're product issues, process issues, or customer issues, then your frontline managers. When executives begin to create an action plan in their ivory towers, in their in their silos, there are big holes in that action plan most of the time, and they are not always successful. So I'm a huge advocate of when you start working through your action plan, get input from your your employees, get input from your supervisors and managers, get the executives together. Right. If it's applicable, get your customers involved, do roundtables with your customers. Any way that you can put all the pieces together as accurately as possible while you're creating that action plan. And then the third step is you have to assess the risk. We've we've discussed this. So we have our action plan. We've got everyone's ideas. We think we've got a good, strong action plan, but we don't want to do one, two, go. We have to do one, two, three, go. And the third piece is is assessing the risk. The potential cost of the risk in the event of failure, calculate the return on investment in the event of success. You have to look, you have to look at both sides. And if the loss could be greater than you can sustain, it could put you out of business. 
and yeah. you'll, you'll be a uh, another company that we will talk about on our die list in our next yeah, right. podcast, right? So I'll, I'll give a quick example. It's a simple, small example that we went through all the time as an agency, and all agencies do this, um, RFP responses and pitches. So um, there's an opportunity. Um, yes, this sounds crazy for those of you that get paid for all the work you do. Um, uh, the plumber doesn't come and, and do the work and you get to see if you like it and then you know decide if you're going to pay for it. Well, in the agency world, we do something called pitching where we show up uh, with as many as uh, four to sometimes 10 other agencies. And we decide that this is a risk we want to take. We really would like this account. We go through the pitch process, which very often is very costly and actually is the development of a complete campaign. And uh, this is before the the, uh, the brand has spent a single dollar. So they'll get six agencies that come in and present ideas. Um, those can cost us 10, 20, 30,000 bigger agencies. I know mm-hmm. that's as big into the six figures, believe it or not. And they have to decide whether they want to do this um, to get a brand. And then to your point, what's the ROI? Is it worth 10 grand to get a, a you know, $5,000 a month retainer client? Probably not. You know, maybe it is, you know, maybe that does those numbers work out, but you got to figure out those numbers and decide, is this a risk we want to take and we can sustain? Yes. And I do that frequently in my business when I have been contacted to help an organization through cultural change or leadership development or whatever it is. And we start talking about project fees and costs the, the question very quickly becomes, for me, as I'm working things out, how many hours will I be spending on <laughs> right. the work of the work? And then what are they willing to pay for a fee? Yeah. You, you yeah. know, so it, we had a means for evaluating the risk involved in pitching new business. We actually called it the five P's of the new business pitch process, which can be expensive. Right. Um, the five P's were. Passion, profit, portfolio, potential, and people. We will post a graphic on the DisneyWayDigital.com and you can check that out in more detail. So yeah, you should have, you know, if it's something like like in our world, pitches that you do over and over and you're making these decisions of risk, um, you should make an evaluation list like that. Yes. You just, you have the same parameters every time you're making those decisions. Yeah, I'm a huge fan and I do it and you do it. So we know that, that that's an important step because it works, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, when we talk about, and I'll just wrap up this piece with, you know, one, two, three, go. Like I said, not one, two, go. One, two, three, go. <laughs> Once you've got this information, you've done everything you can do. So now make a decision and move. Okay. Move forward. Right. And that's the very best you can do. But track results. Is this working out the way we thought? Like CNN Plus said, whoops, this is not working. We're out of here. Um, yeah. You have, you can't just roll it out and then ignore it. Say, well, that's done on to the next, you know? Um, so we're talking about examples and, and so forth. And I talked about involving everyone in this process. And, I, and I'll just give you a, a Disney example. After we got through the dark years, Michael Eisner came on board and, uh, you know, things were changing, not rapidly, but, but were changing. And then because the executive team in California had done a tremendous amount of work around we are going to take Disney to the next level while maintaining the culture. And so that's when the Disney decade, what we call the Disney decade, came about, where Michael Eisner announced the growth of the property. Hotel after hotel after hotel was announced. And they were all previewed to us, the cast members, 
in great detail. And wow. it was it was it was a double edged sword. It was exciting, but those of us cast members that had been around for a while thought, "Oh my gosh, these guys are crazy." Yeah, that's a big change. We are barely making making it right now. The guests have dropped off. Our attendances weren't so great, and this guy wants to build four more uh, hotel properties. And they were right. talking about new theme parks. You know the studios and and yeah. kingdom and they were talking about the theme park gates and and we we went around as cast members going oh my gosh because we weren't privy to all the work the data work they had done so there's a lot of trust involved here and we're saying gosh you know these guys are crazy they're gonna they're gonna put us under we had to adapt our beliefs and our trust in the new executive team they gave us a lot of information. So the as we started to build the Grand Floridian, as we started to build the economy hotels, guests were excited about it. So we adapted a saying from the movie, Field of Dreams, you know, we started to walk around saying, build it and they will come. Because <laughs> as they built these hotels, guests flocked to this new exciting part of the Disney company. Something yeah. they hadn't seen in a long time. Innovation had pretty much died with the Disney company. And it was something right. Walt was known for. So it took us back to our culture. And as we are building and building and building, and yes, they were they were coming but there was a tremendous amount of work done by the teams, the executive teams. We were in the loop and and the guests did come because the innovation was back on board and it was a very exciting time, you know? Yeah, as, as someone who was going to the parks, I mean, I, I think from high school days, I visited Disney every other year at least um, since, you know, since I've been 20. And it was exciting to see something new and get to a new, you know, which which place are we going to stay? It was not even about which parks are we going to, you know, it was like, where will you stay? Because every piece of the experience was now a Disney experience. But a lot of people were staying outside and coming, you know, and traveling to the parks. So this was a nice opportunity to give folks the uh, ability to be immersed in Disney 24-7 for their whole vacation. Yes. And I think it paid off, right? It Well, it did. And I, <laughs> I think a brilliant concept that they had was realizing that there were many levels of people who had different levels of, of income, desires, not everybody wanted to go to the Grand Floridian. Not everyone could go to the Grand Floridian at the cost. So the concept of let's build a series of um, economy hotels is what they were dubbed at first. You know, your all-star, your all-star sports, your all-star music and so forth opened up a means for excited Disney fans yeah, yeah. to come and stay on Disney property when before it wasn't possible for them when when we had the contemporary, the Polynesian and the um, right. Grand Floridian. And so it opened up a whole new world of customers to be able to come and stay on property and, and enjoy staying on a Disney property. Uh, so yep, absolutely. that's an adaptation born out of innovation that was hugely successful. You know, indeed, absolutely. Well, we are getting close to the end here. I'm going to give you a little bit of tech talk and we'll give you some great advice and tell you what's coming up next episode. So, um, yeah, I, I, my piece of advice from the tech side is um, the data you can gather is so much greater than it was uh, even 10 years ago. Right. So there, you have no excuse for not 
being well-informed. You have your website analytics and your traffic trends on your website. You can secret shop. You can um, do competitive reviews, um, develop custom profiles from your email lists yourself, or better yet, there are third parties that can do data overlays and that can give you more information extracted from your email list than you ever thought you could about customer profiles. They can build very detailed customer profiles with, of course, not accessing anyone's personal information. So you get these personas that you can extract. So again, knowing more about who your customer is, and there's so much more available. Whereas years ago, it was trade magazines, business pubs, trade shows, dinner and drinks with colleagues, um, and all that still exists. But there's no excuse for not being well-informed about your business and where it's going. So true. And then a term that we use in the tech world called heuristic learning, this idea of learning from experience, it's, it's applied very often to uh, machine learning and AI. Honestly, it's something humans have been doing for years and years. You try, you fail, you learn, you try, you fail, you learn, you try, you succeed. So this idea of failure is integrated with the idea of innovation, even adapting. You can adapt something that worked for someone else, may not work for you. Recognize it's not working quickly, um, as I've heard some say, fail fast and learn fast. Mm -hmm. uh, there was an agency that I love called Wyden Kennedy, and they had a motto called fail harder. They had a group of uh, the agency uh, team stay for, I think it was four days and nights straight. They did a push pin thing on a wall about 10 feet tall called <laughs> fit, and it said fail harder. And it, they did not spell the words with the push pins. They, they filled in the background and the words were spelled from the negative space. So um, fail harder. That's cool. That was a great motto from a great agency. So, and then I will leave you with my, one of my favorite League of Their Own, Jimmy Dugan, one of the best characters ever in movies that um, Tom Hanks portrayed. As Gina Davis's character came out and said, I'm not going to the championships. It just got too hard. Jimmy leans in and he says, if it wasn't hard, everyone would do it. It's the hard that makes it great. And I love that. What a great scene. Anyway, I think we got to give them some advice. Maybe the greatest piece of advice I'll ever get, Deb. Yes, for this week. <laughs> for this week. We think. We think. <laughs> right, exactly. So look, innovate, adapt, or die. It, it, it's pretty self-explanatory. It says a lot. Don't forget it. Maybe put it up on your wall somewhere. But you really need to understand your risk tolerance level, your willingness and ability to handle failure. And I think armed with this, you can look forward and never look back. So that's a wrap. Um, on to next week, we have our first guest, a former colleague of Deb's from Disney Institute. Right, Deb? Yes, I'm very excited. That's exciting. Yeah, she is uh, was a colleague of mine at the Disney Institute and a very good friend. Her name is Mary Flynn. She is one of the most creative people I've ever known. She has unbounding energy and absolutely amazing business acumen. So we're going to hear from her and let her tell you a little bit about her philosophy around creativity and risk-taking and success and failures. So um, I, I'm very excited to have her on. Yeah, sounds great. Me too. So thanks, everyone. We will see you next week on The Disney Way for the Digital Age. Thanks so much. Thank you. You've been listening to The Disney Way for the Digital Age. Our producer and engineer is Stephen Byram, show coordinator Taryn Pre-Trahan, and voiceover by Cindy Clifford. Kevin and Debbie can be reached for free advice or paid consulting at kevin at 
DisneyWayDigital.com or Debbie at DisneyWayDigital.com. A new episode is released each Tuesday morning. We hope you continue to listen. Listen.